Welcome to this New Scientist-sponsored podcast, the second in a series exploring how the UK has transformed its ecosystem for clinical trials to make it a world-leading destination for a new era of medicine. My name is Justin Mullins, and this week I'm talking to a man at the heart of this revolution. Professor Andrea Manfrin is Deputy Director of Clinical Investigations and Trials at the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, the MHRA. It is his team that is tasked with delivering one of the biggest overhauls of UK clinical trial regulations in 20 years, and we're going to get into the details of that. But first, Andrea, welcome. Thank you so much for having me today. It's a pleasure. Let's start with the MHRA, which plays a hugely important role in this landscape. Tell me about that role. The MHRA is probably one of the most important regulatory agencies in the world for his pragmatism, for the reputation that he had. And we have to remember that the MHRA was the first agency to uh, approve a COVID vaccine during the COVID pandemic. And that is self-explanatory, I would say. It's remarkable. So I'm very proud to be part of the MHRA family. And we have been given a fantastic opportunity to redesign the clinical trial environment in the UK and potentially beyond. Can you set out a little bit more about its, its roles and its goals? I think that the MHRA is aiming to be an agile regulator, putting patient safety as a paramount, but uh, uh, enabling new medication for new treatment and for the patient to be available in a fast way and safe way as well. Part of the MHRA's role is to create a vibrant and attractive environment for uh, life sciences research. What are the key ingredients for success from your point of view? Well, first of all, I think the probably the most important ingredient is curiosity. Be open to innovation. Be well equipped. That means, you know, have the right people with the right skill set. Be supportive. So we have a fantastic research environment and the MHRA is supporting this research environment with uh, its activity, which is the regulatory science activity, which is really embedded into the science as well. The MHRA is playing a fantastic role as an enabler and a proactive organization to support the development of science. And you have to work at the cutting edge of science. How do you maintain the expertise that is necessary for that? Because this is an area that is moving very rapidly, isn't it? So in some way, this is the challenge, supporting what's going on and developing the skills that you need to go into the future. So we have fantastic scientists working at the MHRA and in our team. We support their training in cutting-edge technology, cutting-edge medication. We are keep reviewing information. And the work uh, that we do is to review the cutting-edge clinical trial. So we learn also when we do our job. And this is a continuum process, which is not stopping and is keep going on a daily basis. And also we work uh, with the international community as well. So we can benchmark ourselves and we can learn from the other and we can exchange best practice as well. And all together is allowing us to be in a very good position to support the life ecosystem and the research ecosystem in the UK. And can you give me an, an example of the kind of cutting-edge science that you've particularly become involved in recently? Yeah, for instance, we have clinical trial in utero. I never thought about that. Usually we think about clinical trial in adult population, but in utero I never come across. This is very challenging. We have now a project that is looking to support clinical trial in pregnancy. 
which is fantastic because generally speaking, the attitude as that uh, give or administer medication to pregnant women is a risky one, but the literature and the recent literature is suggesting that is not uh, unsafe, is more complex. So we need to learn the type of complexity that is behind the scene in order to be safe and secure to provide the medication to the potential pregnant woman that could be involved in clinical trial, for example. But there are also recent publications that are showing that the activity that the MHRA is doing is supporting new uh, medication for cancer, new medication to treat blood disease. And these are all game-changing treatments. And a bigger part of what the MHRA has to do is to maintain public trust in this process. Of course. I think that you know transparency is a very important element to ensure safety but also to um, reinforce the idea that uh, we are working for the benefit of the patient as well. Safe medication can be game-changer or life-changer instrument for people. And we saw this during the summer. And our medication are medication that can reach different types of population, from the elderly to the adult to the child to the people that are not yet in this world, as I said, in utero trials, which is just remarkable. Mm -hmm. And how do you build trust? Building trust is, is a continuous type of activity. It's, n it's a never-ending story because every day you need to build trust and gain trust and retain trust. The way in which we work is uh, by applying the best knowledge that we have. And by doing this, we have also to keep creating or upskilling ourselves in what we do to provide the best advice that we can because we work with an important community of sponsors. And these are divided in two main categories. The commercial sponsor, say pharmaceutical company, for instance, but we have also the non-commercial sponsor, so university or charities. And each of them, they have different requirements. But still, there is a common drive, which is to develop new medication or to bring new or repurposed medication to the market for the benefit of the patient. And how do the, what are the different demands that those two groups Put on you. Yes. So in terms of quantity, the ratio between commercial and non-commercial is nine commercial trials out of 10. So 85% to be precise are commercial trials and 15% are non-commercial. I would say that academia is usually at the cutting edge of the forefront in terms of ideas. And these are ideas are developed in a small scale in an academic environment. And if these ideas are perceived good, then they will be taken up by pharmaceutical company. They have the power and the economic power and, and the infrastructure to take it to a larger scale. Because we need to think that uh, the development of the medication starts for a very small number of people, and then it will be tested in a very large population. But by doing this, you need experience, you need structure, and you need the economic resources. And the vast majority of the time, the non-commercial sponsor, they do not have the, com the, the economic resources of the commercial sponsor. So there is a kind of a, I would say, a synergic type of activity between the two entities. Some of the most famous trials that the MHRA have been involved in have been non-commercial trials, particularly during COVID. What have you learned from that? I think COVID became a catalyst. So everyone worked for a common goal. And this is one of the reasons, potentially, that... Uh, allow this kind of a miracle to happen. One of the largest trials in the world 
conceptualized in the UK, if you like, and conducted everywhere. And this is fantastic. I learned from the COVID, and as I said, that it was before my time, we learned something which is really important that is informing our new model of working. Generally speaking, the development of a medication and the testing process of medication goes into stages. They start from stage one, which is called phase one, and goes into what is called phase two, and then phase three and phase four. Usually the phase one is the beginning of the story of this medication and is tested, generally speaking, in healthy volunteers. Then if the medication is safe enough, go to the next step, phase two, where we are looking at the safety and the efficacy. The medication doesn't work. So if the balance between safety and efficacy is good, the medication is safe and it does the job, then the medication is taken to a very large population, which is the phase three. And then eventually it will be available on the market. But during this process, there are steps and all those steps are, generally speaking, clearly defined. During the COVID, we have been forced to overlap those steps and to develop these steps in parallel. And this is the idea that is behind one of the models that is informing our new clinical trial operation system, which is called the clinical trial lifecycle package. The submission from the from the sponsor side of a full package from phase one, two, three, and four. And then we help the sponsor, either commercial or not commercial, to go through the single phases in a smooth, agile way by providing scientific advice upfront during the development of the trial, the what was happening during the COVID. And from the point of view of a commercial uh, pharmaceutical company, how does that change the process for them? Commercial, they have always safety as a paramount as we do. But for them, time is extremely important because the organization of a trial is very complex because you need to go not only through the development of the idea, conceptualization, when you got the molecule or the medication, but you need to develop also the recruitment strategy. So time is an essential element for them. Therefore, having the reassurance that the agency is supporting the development according to a specific and detailed time frame for them is essential. And things haven't always gone to plan in this respect in, in the past. Talk me through how things have evolved. Well, absolutely. So when I joined the uh, MHRA in June, we faced one of the biggest challenge uh, for the clinical trial unit, the backlog, which means, you know, a lot of clinical trials that for several reasons were not assessed and uh, were pending. And this uh, caused a big problem for all the clinical trial ecosystem in the UK and beyond. So during the summer, the agency decided to deploy a lot of staff working within the clinical trial unit. And we combine this important redeployment with a different approach to the assessment of clinical trial. And by different approach, I mean this. Before we were, the system was structured in this way. Every single trial was approached and assess in the same way. Now, since uh, the summer, we introduced this new modality of assessing trial, allocating the right amount of effort according to the risk of the trial. A very high risk trial has got 200% of our attention. A low risk trial, not as much. So we can allocate our best effort where it is needed. It doesn't mean that the trial that are low risk, they are not look after, they are look after but there is a balanced effort, which is according to the risk and benefit perceived. I'll come back to risk and benefit in a minute, but can you give me a sense of how the backlog has changed in that time? Sure. 
So I started, well, I joined the agency in June. By the end of June, we had about 966 clinical trials. So clinical trials are divided into family, let's put it this way. The first one is the clinical trial defined as initial, which is the full documentation for the trial that will be assessed by the agency. At that time, we had about 360 of them. And the rest are called amendments, which are the modifications. So a clinical trial that is already ongoing, then the sponsor, so the people, that, the team that developed the trial, they would like to change something. For instance, they would like to add another medication. They would like to expand the recruitment criteria. A clinical trial, uh, which was aiming to recruit people between 40 and 60, they would like to recruit 40 and 70. These are simple example, of course. And all those kind of amendments, they were around 600. So the ratio was one to two, one to three. So what we did, we redesigned the processes that we were using to uh, assess clinical trial. We introduced a risk proportionate approach according to the different type of medication. We divided the medication in three main categories. High risk, for instance, a new medication for the first time in the human being. High risk. We have to be very, very careful on that one. On the opposite spectrum, medication that already well known, used everywhere just to repurpose. So these are not as risky as the previous one because we know the strength, we know the side effect, they've been around for quite a long time. So the level of risk is of course lower. And then we have the middle ground area where we have the medium risk trial that are medication that are, for instance, used in a different type of population with different type of dose range, for example. And these are the medications that require a bespoke type of assessment as well. And how has that changed the timelines involved? Give an example. Before the backlog, the MHRA was delivering the assessment of the trial according to the statutory timeline, which is 30 days for the first review. During the backlog, we had a trial that were with us for 150, 160 days, which is five times longer. By doing this, we were in the position to speed up the assessment, allocating the resource in the right way. We had this very important deployment of people that helped us to go through the backlog. And from mid-July 2023 until August, we processed around 2,300 applications, over 2,000 applications. And by the end of September, beginning of October, we processed over 3,000 applications. This happened during a very short period of time with a completely redesigned process, redesigned focus, and a large workforce as well. And since September 2023, we are meeting the statutory timeline. So all the clinical trial in terms of clinical trial initial is the full package and the clinical trial amendments that are the modification, they are all assessed according to the statutory timeline. And we are publishing our metrics, our data on a monthly basis on the MHRA website. And what's happened to the backlog as a result of all of this? So the backlog is gone, but the lesson that we learn is not gone. The lesson that we learn is not only allowing us to think how to handle trial in a different way, but has also informed the development of the new clinical trial model to support the new regulation that you were mentioning before. This is the biggest change since 2004, and it's not nice to say, but thanks to the backlog, we are in the position to deliver a new system. So the backlog in some way forced us to innovate.
And so from the point of view of a commercial pharmaceutical company, how are things changing for them? First of all, we are in the position to be predictable. So if we say 30 days, it is 30 days. Second, we are proactive. So if they need help, they can reach us. Email, phone, meeting. We do not want that they perceive that we are working against them. We are working to enable their activity. Commercial and non-commercial, we treat them equally. Furthermore, we are now upskilling our uh, workforce because we know that there is a lot of demand for special medication, gene therapy, for instance. So we are upskilling our workforce because we would like to offer scientific advice, which, is, which are some kind of meeting that the sponsor, they tend to require before the submission to ensure that what they have or what they are going to submit is fit for purpose. And we would like to expand this even further. For instance, now we are offering two scientific advice meetings on a monthly basis. We have in our clinical trial unit three teams. We have the medical team, medical assessor. We have the non-clinical teams, pharmacologists and toxicologists. And then we have the quality team, pharmacists. So the vast majority of them are not only involved in assessing clinical trials, but providing scientific advice, helpline, answering query, replying to minister inquiry as well. This is just some example. So you've been through this period of rapid change that is transforming this landscape. So what does the future hold? I think that the future is very interesting. It's very challenging by all means because things are changing very quickly. So what we are aiming to do, we are aiming to introduce an even further uh, or even more evolved model. So really concentrating and focusing on the challenging clinical trial. We would like to work together with the pharmaceutical company providing a lot of scientific advice upstream instead of waiting. So in this way, you know, all the trials that we will receive, they will be already prepared for the assessment in some way. Therefore, our assessor will go through the trial without finding a lot of issues, for instance, because all the issues have been ironed out beforehand. So the trial submission is already very, very good and robust. Andrea Manfred, that was fascinating. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. This podcast was sponsored by the UK Department for Business and Trade and the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency.